podcast for my mother. She read to me when I was little, so now I'm returning the favour and you're welcome to listen along. It's Thursday and that means I'm reading something offbeat. Some days are for classics, but whatever I'm reading, it's always great writing. Today I'm exploring the idea of lyrics as literature. Can song lyrics be literature? Can they be great literature? Are they poems? Well, Bob Dylan, singer-songwriter extraordinaire from America, was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2016 for his song lyrics, for having created new poetic expressions within the great American song tradition. So the question has been asked and answered, yes, song lyrics can be literature. But that is not how British poet, playwright, novelist, librettist and lecturer that's from Wikipedia, Glyn Maxwell sees it. Not at all. And he has written quite wonderfully on the subject in his short book On Poetry, which was published in 2012. Shout out to listener Fredo for reaching out and suggesting Maxwell. Thank you so much, mate. It's a terrific little book, even if, in my opinion, and the opinion of the Nobel Literature Committee, Maxwell is wrong. Let's begin. This is a book for anyone. There are as many outlooks on poetry, on poets, on poems, on poetics as there are people who read, but my book is for anyone. So forgive me if I leap as far back in time as possible to find a place where we all agree. This far. Alert, curious, more or less naked, without language, looking out over the green savannah. Now that was a leap, that's an outlook. You see an open space with trees whose branches spread out near the ground and bear fruit. You see a river or path that winds away out of sight beyond the horizon. You see a few animals, you see changing clouds. You like what you see. 200,000 years later, you'll call this outlook beautiful but the word's no use to you now. Time after time, in the field of evolutionary psychology, the children of today, from anywhere on Earth, in test conditions, point to this picture, choose it over all others, forests, jungles, mountains, beaches, deserts, as the view most pleasing to them. What are they looking at? What are they really looking at? Well, evolutionary psychologists think they're looking at this. An open space, we can hunt. With trees, we can hide. Whose branches spread out near the ground, we can escape. And bear fruit, we can eat. We see a river, we can drink, wash, eat. Or path, we can travel. That winds away out of sight, we can learn. Beyond the horizon, we can imagine. We see a few animals, we can eat more. We see changing clouds. Rains will come again, we can tell one day from another. And all in all, we like what we see. What evolutionary psychologists, and I, believe is that aesthetic preferences, those things we find beautiful, 
originate not in what renders life delightful or even endurable, but in what makes life possible. Art, drawing, writing, poetry are marks made in time by that gazing creature. Poetry has been unnecessary for almost all of creation. Strictly speaking, it still is. But it happens to be my savannah, this strictly speaking, and it may well be yours. So let's advance together, alert, curious, naked, or at least two of those, into our first landscape, admiring again what we can't be without. And since this is a writer's book about writing, let's stop to take with us a leaf from one of the earliest such books to have reached us, Aristotle's Politics, where the philosopher observes that practically everything has been discovered on many occasions in the course of the ages, for necessity may be supposed to have taught men the inventions that were absolutely required. And when these were provided, it was natural that other things, which would adorn or enrich life, should grow up by degrees. Let's start again with nothing. Let's start with poetry's inventions that are absolutely required. Their names are something and nothing, and see what comes of them. Imagine whiteness, a blank sheet of paper, the white screen, ready the black of ink or pixels. Put the blank paper or the empty screen right to one side there and start to know it. Regard the space, that ice plane, that dizzying light, that past, that future. Already it isn't nothing. At the very least, it's your enemy, and that's an awful lot. Poets work with two materials, one's black and one's white. Call them sound and silence, life and death, hot and cold, love and loss. Any can be the case, but none of those yins and yangs tell the whole story. What you feel the whiteness is right now, consciously or more likely some way beneath that plane, will determine what you do next. Call it this and that. Whatever it is this time, just don't make the mistake of thinking the white sheet is nothing. It's nothing for your novelist, your journalist, your blogger. For those folk, it's a tabula rasa, a giving surface. For a poet, it's half of everything. If you don't know how to use it, you are writing prose. If you write poems that you might call free and I might call unpatterned, then skillful, intelligent use of the whiteness is all you've got. Put more practically, line break is all you've got. And if you don't master line break, the border between poetry and prose, then you don't know there is a border. And there is a border. A prose poem is prose done by a poet. More of this later. Let's just keep staring out that whiteness Get accustomed to its face. You want to hear the whiteness eating? Write out the lyrics of a song you love. Twenty years or so back, I might have pointed out that the generations of young poets who judged rhyme a thing of the past nevertheless knew off by heart a good 200 rock lyrics knitted as gaily as Mother Goose. Maybe some quality rap songs made the old cat-sat-mat thing conscious again. 
but do write something down. Rock, rap, folk, show tune, anything. But something written for music. Something regarded as truly wonderful in its world, loved by you, loved by your world. Let it try breathing in the whiteness I am speaking of. Anything you like. I mean love. Say mine is Dylan's late song, Not Dark Yet. I think that's a timeless song, as memorable as Robert Frost. But unlike Frost, it shrinks in the whiteness. Written down, it looks amateurish. Hallmark. Try it with the best, really. Cole Porter, Rogers and Hammerstein, John and Paul. Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, Bob Marley, Tom Waits, Tori Amos, Eminem, Jay-Z. Try it. If you strip the music off it, it dies in the whiteness. Can't breathe there. Without the music, there's nothing to mark time, to act for time. Song lyrics are not written upon whiteness, so the whiteness is alien to them, a corroding air. You can hear it eating those sweet lines away. Song lyrics are not composed to take the form of black signs upon that whiteness. Therefore, the blackness itself is alien, doesn't have the blood the sung words have. I give to you, and you give to me, true love, true love. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. How does it feel to be on your own? Let's get together and feel all right. Do you remember when we used to sing... Sha-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-
I go about things the wrong way. I am human and I need to be loved, just like everybody else does. I think that from Homer's Iliad to Dante's Divine Comedy to Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade and Wordsworth's Daffodils, great poems are meant to be spoken, not just read. And if they can be spoken, they will be sung. Because what is singing if not the funnest kind of speech? There's a reason William Blake's poem was set to music. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? It keeps the poem alive and gives it more weight. How can you listen to Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven and Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody? songs that we all know all the words to, and not hear that it's a continuation of the poems of Alfred Lord Tennyson and Wordsworth and all their epic lyric, rhythmic, rhyming works. Now, not every song is a poem. I'll grant both Maxwell and Armitage that. But hardly any poems are worthy of speaking aloud, much less singing. So I doffs my hat to the songwriters. My favourite Dylan track is Isis, and that is as epic a poem as it gets. I can imagine Maxwell and Armitage walking past a book of Dylan lyrics and walking away if anyone started to recite Isis. And probably Robert Frost, who did seem a fun fellow, and Larkin and T.S. Eliot, they might also wander off. But I'd wager that Homer and Virgil and Tennyson and Wordsworth would sit down to hear what happens, and they might even break into applause at the wind it was howling and the snow was outrageous. That's a great line, whether written by a poet or a songwriter. In any case, three thumbs up to Glyn Maxwell for his beautifully written thoughts on songs and poems, and to Armitage too, who is currently busy writing about coronavirus lockdown as part of his poet laureate job. Both gents love poetry, and it's not that they don't love songs, they do. They just see a bigger difference than I do between the two. But it's a big old world, and we can't all think the same. Where would be the fun in that? Okay, join me next time when I read The Locked Room Lecture from The Hollow Man, a 1935 classic about how to commit a heinous crime when it seems impossible to do so. Till then, take care. It's slippery out there. And thanks for listening to New Reads.